Would you turn to Psalm 1 with me? As you come in, I hope you uh, grab one of these outlines. If it's a help to you, you can fill out notes as we go through the sermon. Psalm chapter 1. The psalm reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm is the exclamation mark on this sentence. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. A man once told me, there is not a command in Scripture that tells me to read my Bible every day. I said, well, as far as I know, there's not a law in the land that says you must eat food every day. Or drink water every day. But you do. Why? Because you know you need it as sustenance to live. It is so with the Scriptures. We need God's Word to be healthy, to be strong. Healthy and strong Christians have a healthy and strong commitment to the Word of God. We're in a series called The Signs of a Healthy Christian. And... One of the signs of a healthy Christian is their commitment to study God's Word. They don't just read it to read it, but they study God's Word to dwell on it, to delight in it, and to grow in their relationship with God, who reveals Himself in the Scriptures. And of course, that implies a healthy habit, a regular exercise of Bible reading, Bible dwelling, meditating, so on and so forth. Spurgeon writes this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life isn't. Are you a man or a woman that is strong in the Word, with a strong commitment to God's Word? Thomas Watson calls Psalm 1 the Psalm of Psalms. It's strategically placed at the front of the Psalter For it contains the very pith and essence of Christianity. This psalm. This short psalm. It's an illustration of the blessed life. Do you want a blessed life? Then hear and apply these words in Psalm 1. And you should know that there is no mistake that a defining marker of the blessed life is that the person 
delights and dwells in the Word of God. It is a defining marker of the Christian's life. Very important. And so again, it's the exclamation mark on that sentence. Read your Bible. Love it. Cherish it. Delight in it. Dwell in the Word of God. Let's go through this psalm. Uh, Just verse by verse, section by section. It provides an illustration of the blessed life and also the wicked life. You have the blessed man and the wicked man, the righteous man and the wicked. Um, I chose to focus on the blessed one, and so that would make up your outline, of course, because that's who we want to be, but obviously we'll see the contrast between the two persons, the two ways, and the two ends as we go through this psalm. So the first point, point one, is the blessed ones. The blessed ones. It says, blessed is the man. Obviously, it's, uh, that could also include women. The word ish is used to represent uh, the human race. So you have a man and a woman. So blessed is the man or blessed is the woman. This is how Jesus starts his sermon too. Do you remember? Matthew 5, he said, blessed is the man. And he goes through the Beatitudes. I think it's more than a coincidence that there are so many parallels between this psalm and Jesus' sermon. I would go as far to say it's almost as if Jesus exposits Psalm 1 in the Sermon on the Mount. So many parallels. I'll point those out to you. But what does it mean to be blessed? In today's society, it probably you know, is referring to your financial situation, your house size, how many cars you have, what types of cars you have. Oh, that person is blessed. It relates to the circumstances of life. Oh, they're blessed with many children, right? That are all decent, upstanding citizens, right? It's related to circumstances, but that's not what God's blessedness refers to. To be blessed in God's eyes is to have His divine favor. You could think of this being the favored ones. It it has this dual essence where it, it means that you are saved, so you're under the favor of God, but you're also satisfied in God. You could translate it happy, but it's not a subjective happiness like the world's happiness. It's not a happiness that ebbs and flows from within. This is objective happiness. It's secured from above. It's the heaven's declaration, O oh, blessed one. O oh, favored one, O oh, satisfied one. Charles Spurgeon, or excuse me, you need to also know that this Hebrew word blessed is plural. It's plural. So this is to say that there's a multiplicity, an abundance of favor on this man. Charles Spurgeon translates it this way, O oh, the blessednesses. The picture is that of of rain falling, and you're trying to count the drops, you're never going to be able to do it because there's too many to count. That is the divine favor of God upon this man, upon this woman. It reminds me of Ephesians 1, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Him, of course, we have redemption. And it's according to the riches 
of His grace, which He lavished upon us. The grace, the blessedness, the happiness of God fills you and overflows. Psalm 4.7 says this, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. That's saying a lot in an agrarian culture. When, when, when grain and wine are the essence of the economy. Oh God, you've put more joy in my heart than those farmers who have an abundance of grain and an abundance of wine in their storehouses. More joy comes from the Lord. Psalm 36.7 says, How precious, how delightful is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. This is the blessed man. This is the blessed woman. The one who finds refuge and divine favor from God. Are you tired of fickle happiness? A happiness that ebbs and flows depending on the circumstances. Are you motion sick from the roller coaster of this world that promises happiness but never delivers? They overpromise and they underdeliver. It's not true satisfaction that you can get from this world. Don't search for happiness here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, and try the blessednesses of Yahweh, of God. Oh, blessed. Oh, the blessednesses of this man. This is who we want to be. This is the happiness we're searching for. We want to be blessed by God under His divine favor, eternally satisfied in Him. And it's not listed here explicitly, but the implicit is that there's a blessed man and a what man? Cursed. So what's the opposite of being blessed? Well, of course, that's the cursed one. These are the people who are unfulfilled. Unsatisfied. They're grasping for straws. They're pursuing vanity. They're trying to grab vapor. It's fleeting. Furthermore, they're not in God's favor. If you're not for God, then you are against Him. Not destined for salvation, but destined for wrath. Proverbs 21, or sorry, 27.20 says this, Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. So who are you? The blessed ones or the cursed ones? Truly satisfied in the divine riches of God or... Empty and searching, like the one who's not blessed. The blessed ones, that's who we want to be. And so look at number two, the blessed way. The blessed way. So how does, what does this blessedness look like in this man or this woman? What's the activity that they're engaged in? Well, it's sometimes helpful and more clarifying to see what it is not before describing what it is. That often happens in Scripture. Let's look at the negative first. What they don't do so that what they do do is more clarifying. Does that make sense? And so that's what the psalmist does. He starts with the negatives. What they don't do. The blessed one is is one who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is not what they do. This is not what we do if we consider ourselves blessed. Now, you have to notice the parallelism there. That's a common uh, tool that a psalmist will use. Parallelism. And there's a clear digression here, and I want to point that out to you. Spurgeon writes, when a man is living in sin, they often go, they always go from bad to worse. That's what happens. It's a digression. So the parallelism, you go from walking to standing to sitting. There's a change in position. You also have from counsel to way to seat. That's a change in place. Then you have from wicked to sinners to scoffers. There's a change in people. And it's a digression. Here's how I would describe it. It's an illustration of the downward spiral of the cursed way. First, walking. You start by walking in the counsel of the wicked. This is the position of a casual associate. It starts with just a little detour off course. Try this. Taste this. Or maybe with a question from Satan that says, didn't God say... And then you bite. You give in. And just small steps to entertain their philosophy and just to experience a little bit of what the wicked have to offer. And then you find yourself standing. Well, when you're standing next to these people, you now have taken the position of an affiliate. You're caught amidst the thugs and the gangsters. You're guilty by association. You're no longer exploring their way. You're not, this is not, no longer a trial, but you've stopped on their path. You're no longer on the path of righteousness. You're on the way of the sinner. And you're taking further and bigger bites of sin. And then finally, finding yourself sitting. Notice the motion. You were walking, standing. Now you're sitting. This is the position of a student who has now become the teacher. From student to sensei. You now completely identify with the teaching, the philosophy, and the strategy of the wicked. You're now the scoffer. A scoffer is one who openly mocks God. You went from a victim of wrongdoing to now you're a perpetrator of wickedness. This is not the way of the Blessed One. This is not your digression if you are in Christ. Just a note of application, you ought to be careful with the content you consume. Be careful with the content you consume because it's an easy influence on you whether you're watching, you're reading, or you're listening, and you need to know that all the content produced by the world is designed to take you down this road, to take you down this way. Taste the lust of your flesh. Try this. Grasp the lust of your eyes. Take hold of pride in all of your life. You need to guard your heart against this message. And it's the constant message of the world. 
You want to guard your heart lest you find yourself walking in its counsel, standing in its way, or worse, sitting in its seat. Beware of the wicked man in your pocket. The sinner in your hand. The scoffer with a captive audience. I mean, where else in the world can you fit 4.48 billion people in the same classroom to teach them the same, to indoctrinate them with the same worldly message? The world has you. Have you right where they want you when you are consumed with the content that they preach and teach? Guard your heart. Beware of this digression. This is not the way of blessedness. But, at verse 2, do you see that? But, okay, we are now a contrast from the negative to the positive. We know what the way does not look like for the blessed one. What does the way look like? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So the blessed one is not influenced by the content of the world. They are rather influenced by the content of God. The Word. The law of God. Now the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh, is the entire catalog of divine revelation. At least for the psalmist in this context, up until that point. And the reason he mentions the law of God, because it's just you know, a, a big word or a, or a word to describe a big catalog. You have the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, maybe at this time uh, some writings from Joshua and, and potentially some other prophets. Regardless, and, and by the way, the author of this psalm is unknown, but there's speculation. The date of this psalm is unknown, but there's some speculation. Regardless of when it was penned, we know to be included with the rest of the Psalms, it was written during a time when the Torah, again, referred to that big collection of writings. And the Torah was taught and applied by godly leaders, good ones, like Joshua, like Samuel, like David, like Josiah, like Ezra. The law known also as the way of righteousness, it was never intended to be a way to earn salvation. This is a very important point. The law of God was never given so that by keeping it, you may earn God's favor. When was the law given? After Israel was delivered from Egypt. They were saved by grace. And then given a law as a guide, a way to live out the righteous life by faith. By faith and trust in God. This is how it's been from the very beginning. And so the law does three things for the reader. Three things. You can write these down. First is it reveals your sinfulness. The law reveals your sinfulness. Nobody who has read through the law of God, the Word of God, comes to the conclusion that they're good enough. Nobody. If you read the Word of God, it's like a mirror that reveals your blemishes, your faults, your sins. It is ever clear. You are a sinner. We are sinners. Sinners before a holy and perfect God. God's standard is perfection and we 
fall short. That's what the law does. It reveals your sinfulness. Romans 3. The law, secondly, and in this succession, it leads the sinner to justification by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a very important point. Galatians 3.24 describes the law of God like a tutor, a guardian, that eventually leads you to Jesus. You read through the law of the Old Testament, and even those in the Old Testament had to look forward to a promise of one who would fulfill this law because they knew they couldn't. You and I have the privilege of living in the A.D. Okay, We don't live in the B.C. We live in the A.D. We've seen the one, Jesus Christ, the law fulfiller who came and fulfilled the law, lived a perfect and righteous life, and then gave His life on the cross as a substitutionary propitiation atonement. He forgave our sins, paid for it on the cross, and rose again from the dead to declare victory over sin and death. The law of God, the Word of God, leads to its main subject, and that is Christ. Jesus Christ. It leads us all to a place of faith in the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. So it reveals your sin. It leads the sinner to justification by faith in Christ. And thirdly, it then provides the way of blessedness, the way of righteousness for those who have been born again by it. It reveals your sinfulness. It leads the sinner to faith in Christ, and it provides the way of blessing. In order to, verse 2, delight in the law of God, then you need to be born again, because in your sinful nature, you don't want to delight in anything of God. No one seeks for God. No one wants God apart from the grace and transforming uh, regeneration of the Spirit in your life. In order to delight in God's Word, you need your affections changed. You need your desire changed by grace through faith. You need to be radically transformed. The Bible calls this being born again. And when that happens, then you'll want to obey. You'll want to walk according to the commandments of God. So Psalm chapter 1 is a description of the third thing. The way of blessedness. For those who trust in God by faith and walk in His Word. There are two noticeable attributes in verse 2 of the relationship with the blessed one and the Word or the law of God. First, they delight in it. Second, they dwell in it. First, they delight in it. Second, they dwell in it. Let's look first at delight. This isn't read your Bible every day because you have to. This is, I want to read my Bible every day because I want it. Crave it. I regard it as precious. David says in Psalm 19.10, he says, The Word of God is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter than honey. The psalmist, Psalm 119, describes himself with, with my whole heart I seek you. With my whole heart, let me not wander from your commandments. You notice what he said. He said, with my whole heart I seek who? God. The reason 
that the blessed one delights in the Word of God is because in it they find its subject. The Lord Jesus Christ, God, Yahweh Himself. The Christian searches for God in the Scriptures and they never come up wanting. They're filled by Him. Enthralled by Him. Searching for Him with their whole heart. They want Him. And they find Him. In the Old Testament, these these people of God found Him even in the law. And we, the privilege that we have to have the whole catalog, the canon, 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament, we find Him. We find Him. Every page we turn. So, do you hunger for the Word of God like one hungers for food? Do you want it like a newborn thirsts for milk? Are you desperate for God's Word like Paul in his final days, his dying hour, asking for the parchments? Are you like the people in the times of Ezra, weeping when the Word of God is read because you've been craving it and you've been desperate for it all those years of exile? Do you delight in God's Word? Do you want it with your heart? The blessed one does. The blessed one does. They delight in the law of the Lord. And the question then is, if you do not delight in it, why? Is it because sin is blinding your eyes? Is it because sin is like a a wall around your heart preventing preventing you from throbbing for the Word? Or is it possibly that you have not been born again? You don't have the transformed heart that desires the things of God. Ask yourself those questions. The blessed one will delight in the Word. The second attribute is that the blessed one will dwell in the Word. Look at the second half. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's the illustration for meditation. I'm sure you've heard it. This word describing the mm, the, the moaning of a cow that's chewing the cud. Cows have multiple stomachs. And so a cow takes a bite, chews, swallows, and regurgitates and repeats. Bites, chews, swallows, regurgitates. Chews, swallows, regurgitates multiple times before it is fully digested. Right now, this is what my one-year-old son does with his hard food. We're not sure if he has more than one stomach yet. How often does... The blessed one do this. They, they do this day and night. Day and night. This describes frequency. At, at least it's once a day. If not multiple times a day, they're meditating on regurgitating the Word of God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How can you be sure to dwell in and meditate on the Word of God? How can you do this? Read it, at the very least, daily. Pray through the Scriptures so that it's not just words on a page, but they're echoes of your heart's desire. Study the Word of God. Get to know the words that are on that page, knowing what they mean. Write it out if you have to. In the process of writing, sometimes it clarifies your thoughts on the matter. Memorize the Scripture. Take it with you throughout the day. Take it on a note card, a piece of paper you put on your steering wheel, a note in your pocket. 
And when you have a spare moment, pull it up, reread it, recite it, check it before you check your sports. Check the Word of God before your stocks. Check it before your stream. Spurgeon writes this, Make the Word of God the man at your right hand, the constant companion and hourly guide. The Word of God is so precious, such a gift. I don't think we really embrace or understand the the privilege that it is. The privilege that it is for you and I to own a personal copy of the Scriptures. The Bible on your lap. And if it's not in your lap, you can pull it up here. You probably own multiple copies. Some on the bookshelves at home. One in your lap. And if not in your lap, you can take one of the ones under the seat. I don't care. The privilege that we have to have a copy of the English Bible. I mean, think about it. Much can be said about the men who gave their lives to translate it into English. Men like Wycliffe and and William Tyndale. Tyndale's whole purpose in translation was was that the common man would have the Word of God. Would he be able to read it? In fact, he famously quoted saying, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more Scripture than the Pope. He wants you to have the Word of God, to be able to read it and understand it. I have much could be said about the saints before the year 1436. Do you know what was invented in 1436? The printing press. For the purpose of mass distribution of Bibles, Gutenberg Bibles. Think about this, all the saints before that year who rarely, if ever, owned a personal copy of the Scriptures, they had to go to church to read it or have it be read to them. Maybe they would write down excerpts on notebooks and take that home and and have that be the regurgitation throughout the week. How about the people of God in the times of the psalm? This psalm, when it was written, they would have to get up and walk to the temple dozens of miles away to hear the word uh, preached from the priest or the prophet. And here you and I have a copy on our lap, in our smartphones. May you and I form the conviction that we'll not live another day in our lives without delighting in this book and dwelling on it. Knowing that it's a privilege to own a copy. This is the way of blessedness. The blessedness. This is the way of life. One who delights and dwells in the Word of God. And what will you be like if you do this? What will it look like? Well, psalmist shows us an illustration of this. Point number three, the blessed strength. The blessed strength. You will be strong. Look at verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Wow, what a statement. I'm reminded of the giant oak trees that I saw uh, lining the Kings River in Central California. Massive oak trees, big and beautiful. Always green, always full, always producing. No way you and I can knock one of those over. No way. It would take more than a big machine to uproot those trees. They're strong. Why? Why are they strong? Because they have a constant life source. They're on the King's River, the river that's always flowing, at least at this point. 
so has the one who abides in the Word of God. The one who abides in the Word of God is like one of those strong oaks because there are right on the line of the King's River, the, the source that we have of God's Word. You want to be strong? You want to be mature like a, like a giant oak, stable, firm in your convictions? Line your life along the King's River, the Word of God. John 8, 31, Jesus makes this promise. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as we have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Where again do we find Christ? We find it in the word of God. So to be rooted in him and built up in him, we need to be rooted and built on his word. Established in the faith. You'll be strong, immovable, a bulwark of truth. You'll be like the wise man. Here's another parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be like the wise man who builds his house on the strong rock foundation. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. It was strong. And you remember what the foundation was? He who hears these words of mine and does them. Foundation. Right here, the Word of God, the words of Christ, building your life on them. Look at verse 4. Here's the contrast. The wicked are not so. They are not strong. They are not sturdy. They are not immovable. They are not unshakable. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or they're like the fool that built his house on the sand. An unstable foundation. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Same point, different illustration. Chaff, that part of the the wheat that you throw up in the air and it just blows away. It's dead. It's flaky. It moves with the change of winds and the change of times. Is that you, friend? Are you like the chaff or are you like the oak tree? Strong and sturdy or dead, brittle, and easily driven away? Check to make sure where you're planted. Are you planted next to the Word of God? Are you abiding in God's Word? Or are you planting your roots elsewhere? In the philosophies and the ever-changing cultural tides of the world. I heard this illustration at the parenting conference that we were just at. It's a good one. Culture is like an ever-flowing stream. It's always moving. But you and I, Christian, need to have our anchor set in the Word of God so that we don't flow with the changing tides. That is the blessed strength of the, the blessed one. They are abiding in the Word of God and they bear fruit. They are strong. Verse or uh, The fourth point, finally, the blessed end. So we have the, the blessed man and the wicked man, and we see the contrast there. We have the blessed way and the wicked way, and we saw the contrast there, and now we see their end. What, are, what is their destiny? The psalmist tells us, verse 5, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
An event is described here. It's the event of Judgment Day. This is the day every man stands before Jesus Christ. We, we see another teaching on Judgment Day in the book of Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, we also see a fuller description in Matthew 25. Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations, the blessed ones and the wicked ones, the sheep and the goats. And the sheep and the goats are separated from each other. The sheep are the righteous ones, the blessed ones, and the goats are the wicked ones, the cursed ones. And our psalm tells us, therefore, here's the conclusion of all this, the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment or in judgment. That means they'll not endure it. They will be brought low. Nor will the sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not endure that day, and they're not going to squeeze through among the crowds. They're not going to fake out the Lord by just blending in with the righteous one. No, He distinguishes them. He knows those who are righteous and those who are wicked. The goats will be pulled from the sheep. They will be separated. They will be called out. Why? Look at verse 6. Look at this statement. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows. The word for knows has this sense, the way it's written in Hebrew, of, of He knows and He keeps knowing. It's like He's ever watching. The eyes of the Lord are ever watching His righteous ones. And the idea is that it's not an eye like the eye of you know, a sheriff or I'm watching you or a parent, but it's the eye of favor, the eye of blessing, the eye of seeing you as righteous, not because of your own works, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ sees you as he sees Christ. Blessed ones, favored ones, satisfied ones, righteous ones. I know you and I'm watching you. I see you up until that last day and through it. This is such a comfort. It's like the eye of the shepherd who knows his sheep. This is like the eye of the farmer who knows his wheat. He knows you intimately. Job, think about, he says this, in the midst of his greatest trial, Job, who lost everything, had awful circumstances in life, he says this, but he knows, God, Yahweh knows the way that I take. And that was such a comfort to him because he said this, when he has tried me, I'm going to come out as gold. For Job, the comfort was, Yahweh knows me. He's watching me. I have not escaped from His favor, even though circumstances are difficult, He knows me. He's watching me. This is a supreme comfort to the Blessed One. It's a supreme comfort, Christian, that God knows you and His eyes are on you. But it is also a terrifying reality for the wicked. Because if He knows intimately the righteous ones, He does not know the wicked ones. 
And he declares that to them. Do you remember what he declares? Those people on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, he says what? I never knew you. He knows the way of the righteous one. Knows them intimately, relationally. They are in his favor. He does not know the man or the woman of lawlessness. And that sentences them to judgment, perishing. In our psalm, the Lord knows the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Definitive statement. Doom. Destruction. Hell. There is no fooling Christ on that day. Sinners stand in the midst of the congregation here. Right? There are a lot of wicked men and women who pretend to be Christians, who profess the name of Christ, who can fake it here, do good works, save face here. But on Judgment Day, they won't be standing amidst the congregation of the righteous. They'll be pulled out. They will be distinguished by the judge. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows them by name. He doesn't know those who are not righteous, those who are not blessed, the wicked ones. And He will sentence them to death, eternal death, hell. And He's just to do so because they're sinners who deserve it. So this begs the question, not do you know Him, but does He know you? Does God know you? When I ask you that question, does your heart throb with confidence or does it sink in despair? Because at the very least, you're not sure or maybe some of you are confident. He doesn't know me. I am the wicked man or the lawless woman who has no relationship with God. If it sinks terror, or your heart sinks in terror, it's because you're realizing that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn to Him today in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn to the shepherd who knows His sheep. And those who know the shepherd, those who know Jesus Christ, know the Father that He came to submit to, obey, and accomplish His work. Turn from your sins today. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. To be known. To be known. But, if your heart throbs with confidence, I may stumble. I may fall short still. Yet I know He knows me. He knows me. I have that assurance, that confidence in Him. That I want us to end with this verse or these verses from our Scripture reading this morning. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power then has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You're not in glory yet, are you, blessed one? You're not standing perfect before Christ. You still have some time here. So what should you endeavor to do? You should endeavor to make every effort, 2 Peter 1.5, every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with 
knowledge. How then, Christian, are you supplementing your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge? Knowing the God of this book. Abiding in His Word. Meditating on it day and night. Delight in this book. Want it. Crave it. Hunger and thirst for it. And don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Never stop growing in your knowledge of God through the study of His Word. Be like the tree, the strong oak that's planted by its streams and yields the fruit, the good fruit that is produced from those who abide in it. Read your Bible. And don't just read it to read it. Study it to delight in it and dwell in it. Develop the conviction that you need it and treasure it above anything and everything else in this life. Let me pray. Father, the Word of God is such a gift from heaven. You are a God of revelation. You desire to reveal Yourself to us. And You've done that in a variety of ways through history. You've spoken to us through the prophets. You've spoken to us through the apostles. You've revealed Yourself Manifest Yourself ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ who came. The Lagos, the Word that became flesh and showed us who You are. What a privilege it is, God, that we can have a copy of Your divine revelation in our laps. The 66 books of the Bible that reveal who You are. We are not left wondering. We're not left here confused about what we ought to do in our lives, how we ought to live a godly life. You've given us, granted us, Your revelation, Your guidebook, Your source, the streams of life. May we dwell in them. May we abide in Your Word day and night, reminding ourselves constantly of what it says so that we might live in a way that's blessed. We might live in the way that is righteous. Not because we have to, but because we want to. I pray for persons here today who don't have that desire. They are not confident that they know You. God, I pray that they would turn from their sins, repent of their sinful way, the way of the wicked today, and that they would trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That they would cling to the cross and find hope, joy, true blessedness in Him. Pray that today, that your spirit would work in our hearts and lives to apply the word. In Jesus' name, amen.